This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Esther Sternberg. She's an immunologist and the author of Healing Spaces, The Science of Place and Well-Being. I spoke with her on March 30, 2012, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. She was in the studios of public radio station WAMU in Washington, D.C., Download the MP3 of the produced show with Esther Sternberg at onbeing.org. Do you want me to talk? Can I? Oh, can you hear me now? Good. I can hear you. Yeah, I wasn't hearing myself there for a minute. All right, I'm not hearing the echo now. Um, how are I, you, Esther? I I think I was. Let me see if I hear it. No, I don't hear it now. Tell okay. me, tell me, tell me what you had for breakfast. <laughs> I'll check it out. Um, <laughs> Well, I usually have oatmeal and uh, strawberries and blueberries. <laughs> but today? But today I didn't. <laughs> I had to run into work early, so I had a piece of um, uh, raisin bread, raisin and pecan toast with cream cheese. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Um, when was it that we spoke before? When did you publish your first book? Okay. Are we starting? Sorry. No, I think... Yeah, we just, uh, <laughs> Leah just called me and we reduced the, uh, the level. Am I too close to the mic? No. Now I hear my, my echo again. That's an open studio door. Okay. Oh. Okay, uh, just count, count to 20 and when, they, when we get to a place that they're happy with, uh, they'll stop us. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Okay, thank you. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, okay. So, Esther, <clears throat> when was it that you published your first book? What in two thousand. The 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 hardcover copy whew, hardcover came out in two thousand, and the uh, paperback in two thousand one. So what? Well, what's that? Was it was later than that that we met at Chautauqua, wasn't it? It was more like two thousand five. It was two thousand. No, it was just we didn't realize that Katrina was happening because we were cut off from all the news there, oh, and it okay. was August of mm-hmm. Katrina, and uh, we came home and Katrina was in full force. Okay. All right. So it's been. I can't believe this. It's been seven years. Well, right? I've done other I've done other shows with you with the economic crisis. Well, I know, but but that was yeah. our big interview. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. It's about time. <laughs> yeah, it is. Thank um, you so much for yeah. having me on. Say, so tell me. Um, First of all, are we? Be, is this? Are we? This yeah, the show. Or are we just going. talking? We're going. Okay. I want to ask you before we start. Uh, the I remember be- previously you were not able to use your NIH credential for things like this. And that like is this. correct. Is that, that still is true? That is still correct. Okay. That is still true. Okay. Sorry. Um, no, that's okay. But I just want to make sure, <clears throat> just looking at Nancy, my producer back here, when we, when it comes time, we'll need to double check with you about how we yeah, can Yeah, and we'll give, I'll give you, you the, <clears throat> I'll give you the, um, the wording of what okay. you can use. When do you think it'll air? Um, I think it's, I think we're going to turn it around pretty quickly. So within the uh-huh. next month or okay. two. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, um, I, I want to just start with uh, these the, these words uh, from the from the subtitle of the book. These words, place and well being, and um, 
And I want to just ask you what those words evoke. You know, where does your mind go back earliest in your life when you put those two words together, place and well-being? I'm curious about that. Well, it goes back to actually the first part of the last chapter of my book. Um, I describe sitting with my father on the terrace of my house, my, you know, the family home in Montreal and um, listening. I, I could read the the piece if you want. No, no, just, just tell just, me. Just tell me. So we, I remember I was very small, my uh, probably in grade one or grade two, and um, my sister and mother were still getting dressed, and I was sitting uh, at breakfast with my father outside on the on the terrace. We called it terrace, but you know, here in America they call it a deck, and um, and. He used to read. He used to read while he ate breakfast, and there was a probably mystery story propped up against his uh, <laughs> <Okay>. coffee mug. <laughs> he was a scientist, and you know, but he liked to read mystery stories. Um, so, uh, and he looked up from his mug, and he, it was spring. It was early spring, and he looked up at me, and he said, "Listen to the sounds of peace." And I had no idea what he meant, um, and all I could hear was a dog barking. And the puck, puck of a tennis ball across on the at the courts across the street, and the birds chirping, and I only understood many, many years later that for him he was only about ten years away from from the war, from World War II, where he had I discovered discovered after his death um, that he'd been in a concentration camp in um, in a oh, place called sorry. Transnistria, in Russia, and for him. He so savored those moments of peace. And my mother also. My mother had gotten to Montreal before the war. Um, but, you know, she, my grandmother's family and, and she and her siblings had escaped literally on the last moments when the trains were leaving uh, mm. Romania, Germany, and, you know, eventually they got to Canada. And so they really instilled in me this sense of peace and place. Mm -hmm. um, we would often, uh, we were washing the dishes, you know, after dinner, and uh, we we really couldn't see the sunset from our house, but you could tell that it was going to be a beautiful sunset. So we'd all drop everything, and my father would drive us to the, to the top of the hill where the University of Montreal sits, and we'd sit and look at the sunset. And, and my parents explicitly instilled in me the knowledge that we should look, hear, smell, touch everything in our surrounding environment and savor it because this could be your last day. Mm. They actually said that to me mm. um, a number of times, especially the sunset. Look at it as if it's your last. <laughs> and, and as you said, your father was a scientist. He was a doctor. Mm -hmm. Do you think consciously or unconsciously, he made any kind of connection like the one you're making now as a scientist between that experience uh, and, well, if not health, well-being? That's a really interesting question. Um, he certainly didn't explicitly tell me that. So in a way, in the family, I was kind of the son. Uh, there were just two, okay. me and my sister. <laughs> yeah. And and it, uh, from very early on, I 
displayed an interest in science, and in uh, I worked in my father's lab when I was a high school student and college student, and and so I was very deeply steeped in the science that he did. Um, it never had anything to do with place, physical place. He mm-hmm. he was one of the founders of the field that we now call nuclear medicine. He was involved in, very early on in radiation biology and the mm. peaceful uses of radiation and got very much involved in a big political debate in Canada where he went up against the then Minister of Defense and said that all this stuff about fallout shelters is... Um, you know, believe me, if there's a nuclear war, you're not going to be cooking turkey in a little white pinafore in a <laughs> okay. fallout shelter. He, he really said that. Yeah. Um, but so he, was he was using in, radiation to He was using it for, for peaceful things. purposes. Mm-hmm. Yes, for, for thyroid scanning, mm-hmm. for to identify thyroid cancers, to treat cancer. Um, so he was one, really one of the pioneers of what we now call nuclear medicine and radiation biology. Mm-hmm. And um, so he was involved in a different aspect of science than thinking about place explicitly. Right. Now, he was in the same um, department of medicine as Hans Selye, who uh, described or coined the word stress. And the two of them were, I think, often a bit at loggerheads because they were both very prominent, famous people in their departments, but coming at issues from a very different point of view. And, and my father was much more basic science oriented. He had a degree in physics and chemistry. And I think he, I know that he thought this whole notion of stress was a little bit far out there. And and that was the 50s and 60s. And the vast majority, probably 99% of credible, rigorous scientists felt the same way. Well, and um, as I've spoken with you across the years and and read you, I mean, that's also pretty much the perspective you came at all of this from. Ab- absolutely. I, you know, it was very interesting. I, I, When I was coming up through the ranks at, at McGill University and McGill University uh, Faculty of Medicine, and when I trained as a rheumatologist at the Royal Victoria Hospital, and people would mention Hans Selye, I pretended that I didn't know him as a child. Mm-hmm. I was actually embarrassed uh, to uh-huh. admit that I knew this this person. This person who was really, who now we look back and say he's the one who put the word stress in the world vocabulary. That's absolutely right. Huh. That's absolutely right. But the science, and, and the interesting thing, and as I write in both of my books, in, in Healing Spaces and in the first one, in uh, The Balance Within, um, I, I do explore a little bit of this scientific personality and how it affects uh, the acceptance or rejection of scientific ideas. And very often new novel scientific ideas are rejected by, um, you know, by the, the current dogma, by the, by the academic community. And, and for a person to push forward a concept like stress and that mm-hmm. stress could make you sick, back in the 1930s when Hans Selye first proposed it, um, and through the 60s and 70s, to, to do that, you had to have a certain kind of almost grandiose personality to mm. say, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Right. Mm. So, so you and I spoke for the first time um, in 2005, and yes. you had just written your first book, and you had come to a conclusion... Um, after working with your own scientific resistance, um, you know, one way you talked about it is uh, that the notion that 
that stress can make you sick, but also um, that that believing, that loving could make you well. And this this was a hard-won observation. It came for you not merely as a scientist and physician, but you had your own experience of arthritis, <laughs> the, the yes. field you study. It was a question your mother was posing to you, um, asking you to ponder near the end of her life. Now you've kind of taken this farther. Um, you make this observation in um, in your more recent work that physicians and nurses know that a patient's sudden interest in external things is the first sign that healing has begun. And you ask, but do our surroundings in turn have an effect on us? So I would love just as we as we're starting here to hear a little bit about your road from believing from understanding that stress can make us sick and and that positive experiences can make us well and connecting that so passionately to place and surroundings tell me how you got there how did that happen well it was a very gradual journey a literal journey it was a physical journey in the real world and a journey in my own mind and a journey through scientific evidence. Um, So for the vast majority of us coming from a scientist coming from the biological sciences, um, as opposed to, for instance, psychologists or psychiatrists, people who deal with emotions every day, um, for those of us who tend to deal with molecules and cells and nerve pathways, we are taught to strip everything, strip the emotions out of what we're doing, you know, in order to put forward a hypothesis and test it and measure and get Mm -hmm. quantitative documentation that different interventions have different effects on different outcomes, we need to strip the emotions out. Um, And back when I wrote my first book, we started by talking earlier that that even the notion that stress could make you sick was something that people were skeptical about. They were still... They were still skeptical. When I published my first book in 2000, I had a lot of pushback from scientists and physicians um, and uh, who, who, you know, when I talk about stress, they'd all look stressed in the audience and, <laughs> and practically run out of the room but denied that there was such a thing. And, and certainly that it could make you sick was something your grandmother told you and, you know, of course that can't be real. But what happened about the late, in early 1980s, mid-70s to the mid-90s is there was a huge wealth of scientific evidence that um, accumulated rigorous scientific studies that, um, that really proved the physiological basis of these stress pathways, how stress hormones are released in parts of the brain that are specifically regulating the stress response, that those hormones go through the bloodstream and nerve chemicals go through nerves. And and those nerve chemicals, those neurotransmitters and those hormones, those stress hormones have very profound and immediate and direct effects on the immune system, on how immune cells right. function. And you were on the kinds one of, of the people who helped helped explore and explain that, right, in terms of... Right, and, and, right. and I, in arthritis in rats, so when, when you show what I showed is that the brain's stress response was very important in susceptibility to arthritis in rats. 
Um, and then we could transplant that part of the brain and make rats that were otherwise resistant, uh, otherwise susceptible to arthritis resistant to arthritis. We could replace those stress hormones. We could do all kinds of things that really proved uh, that there was a cause and effect relationship between mm. that stress response and susceptibility to uh, these kinds of immune-mediated diseases. Um, then the scientific community's skepticism fell away because one could prove it in scientific terms. And so up until 2000, when I wrote the first book, that's what had been really well explored and well proven in hundreds and hundreds of if not thousands of um, of scientific studies in animals and in and in humans, and at that point, the field had not gotten as far as looking at the positive side. Right. That is, it was easier to stress uh, a rat, a mouse, uh, a fruit fly, a fish, <laughs> a human, and measure something than to say to any of the above. Okay, believe, you know, and then measure something. And, you know, and I just want to interject here. One thing that's always been really helpful to me in your work is is quite simple, but I think it's worth restating, which is um, we observe stress responses in animals and in human beings because the stress response serves a purpose, right? That it, that it, absolutely, right, and that there are a lot of right. ways we need and use and are even protected by the stress response. Absolutely, but what so, so you're, stress resp- yeah, right. and what you're the talking stress about, stress response is life saving. It's life, right? And so it's it's not it's certainly not essentially bad, but right. what you see and what you're able to see is when it goes on too long or it's sustained. Um, then, you know, when there's an excess of it, um, then it tips from being something that's protecting us to something that can be harming us. So, I, I, a- Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so the stress response, that physiological stress response, is what gets you out of danger, the fight or flight response. It gives you the energy to fight or flee. Your heart's mm-hmm. beating faster. It's pumping more, ener- more blood to the organs that need it, your brain and your, your muscles and, and so on. So it's what gets you out of danger. Uh, so the the field the the way this psychoneuroimmunology field evolved in a way is that that piece was proven much sooner in scientific terms than the opposite than the flip side how positive emotions how positive salubrious activities could help make you well mm-hmm. and and i think the reason is the scientific tools were not available until fairly recently it took longer to be able to develop really, um, really uh, stringent means of imaging the human brain in uh, an alive, wake human being, you know, because really, if you're going to study the question of of belief or positive emotions in humans, um, I mean, you can't really study that well in, in rats and mice or fish or, you know, fruit flies. You really need to be talking to a human being yeah. uh, and see how they're feeling and what state they're in, what mental state. So it took quite a while for those kinds of technologies to evolve, to be precise enough to measure the nerve chemicals of desire, you know, dopamine, the, mm. the nerve chemicals of, of and the anti-pain neurotransmitters, the opioid uh, neurotransmitters, endorphins in the brain, while somebody was doing something like meditating or praying. Um, you know, so it took a long time to get those technologies, but when we got them, those kinds of studies 
uh, just took off. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence now that positive emotions can um, can activate uh, brain pathways, uh, nerve pathways that we know uh, can help heal. So part of the story that you are involved in and that I think you're going to be telling us as we keep talking is really of a whole new, um, as you say, uh, neuroimmunology is a, mm-hmm. what did you say? Psychoneuroimmunology. Psychoneuroimmunology. Yeah, I mean, these are new fields, um, new ways of yes. describing a scientific uh, uh, discipline. And mm-hmm. you're part of these new encounters between neuroscience and other kinds of scientists and architecture and um, people involved in all kinds of spaces from how hospitals are designed to civic spaces to contemplative spaces. So there's a whole cast. There's a drama unfolding. There's a cast of characters (laughs) and there's this whole new body of knowledge. It's really um, exciting. I mean, but some of it, as you say, as you said before about... um, this whole idea that stress can make you sick, that your grandmother knew this. <laughs> but we needed, yeah. we needed generations of science to prove it. I mean, there, there's, there, there's, there's a, a, a lot of that in this. There's a lot of stuff that's absolutely fascinating and new. And then there's this, there's this um, affirmation of, of intuition. So, you know, I just want to start. One of, the, one of the milestones in this story that you've talked about is um, Roger Ulrich's study mm-hmm. called View from a Window, the View from a Window <laughs> study of 1984, which right. was the beginning of one of these pieces of this new puzzle of what, what you now call environmental psychology. So um, tell that story as we start. Well, so Roger Ulrich is a, an environmental psychologist who back in 1984 realized that he could actually do a clinical, well-controlled, randomized trial to measure the effects of views out of windows on healing. And what he did is he took advantage of a naturalistic experiment, if you will, where in uh, a particular hospital, the Paoli Hospital in Pennsylvania, uh, patients were admitted to a ward for gallbladder surgery. Back in those days, you actually stayed in hospital for a number of days after you had gallbladder yeah. surgery. Um, and uh, and some of them randomly were assigned to beds with a view of a brick wall, and others uh, had a view of a grove of trees. And he simply took the clinical data and measured how much pain medication these patients needed during their recovery, how long they had to stay in hospital, how, in other words, how quickly they healed, uh, the number of negative nurses' notes where they were complaining or had pain or such. And, and he controlled for everything, age, sex, um, you know, medic- other medication use, other disease use. And all of these patients were taken care of by the same doctors and nurses. Hmm. So it was an extraordinarily well-controlled study. And even with all these controls, where the single variable that differed between patients was the view out the window. What he found was that the patients with a view of a grove of trees left hospital on average a day sooner, needed less pain medication, and had Mm. fewer negative nurse's notes than patients (laughs) who had a view of a brick wall. Oh, interesting, yeah. Well, and one of the scientists that we interviewed, I'll fast forward to, to one of the chapters in the book and also to the television show that we did based on this, The mm-hmm. Science of Healing, um, 
Irving Biederman uh, has a great quote where he says, you know, obviously looking at a view does something positive to the brain. And his hypothesis is that endorphins are released in that part of the brain that recognizes a beautiful or preferred view. And he said, why else would we pay hundreds of dollars more for a hotel room with a beautiful view? Right. You know, that really tells you that people are willing to put money out to pay for a view. Yeah, but we don't think of it in terms of this is good for us. I mean, we don't even no, we don't even think true. it that through that much. We just know that's no. what we want. That's what we well, prefer. Well, and I I think that's the case with place in general. Mm-hmm. I think until I until I started doing this, until uh, the architects asked me, so the then director of research of uh, the American Institute of Architects, um, John Eberhard, and the uh, director of research for the um, General Services Administration, Kevin Campshire, asked me, uh, they built all the buildings for the government, mm. asked me, is there a way to measure the effects of built space on people's emotions, mood, health, and ultimately productivity? Um, is there a way to design office buildings, is what they were interested in, in such a way that we we can improve people's moods and, and productivity, ultimately, mm-hmm. and, and health in that space? And I didn't really think of it that much uh, before they asked me. And and I think what happens is we're, we're so busy running through our busy lives. We wake up in the morning, we have to take the kids to school, and, you know, we go to work, and we have to, you know, rush through things and constantly focusing on our computers or our, you yeah. know, uh, mobile phones or whatever. We don't notice the space that we're moving through, most of us. If you're an architect, yes, you do, but, right, right, <laughs> but most right. of us don't really pay much attention to the place we're in. And yet, even if you don't consciously pay attention to it, even if you're not consciously aware of it, um, studies, including some of ours, show that your stress response responds very powerfully. Your positive emotional responses in the brain respond very very strongly to the physical environment, to what you see and what you hear and what you smell and what you touch mm. uh, and what you do in a space because space, place, shapes behavior. So so let's talk about some different kinds of experiences that, that again, we have and maybe things we kind of know without processing. I mean, so uh, I think uh, most people or certainly many people would agree that um, being in a beautiful pl- place of beautiful nature is somehow nourishing, uplifting. You know, people would use different mm-hmm. words. That it, that, it's, that it feels good and is good for us, and we often know that we're restored afterwards. So what do you know, what do we know now about what is happening in us physiologically uh, then in those experiences. I, I, I want, because you use the word restored, can I read uh, something, uh, uh, a favorite psalm of my father's? Yes, that... of course. <laughs> so in, in the last chapter, I, I say that my father was not a very religious man, but he would read his favorite psalm, which was the 23rd, sometimes after dinner, and he'd pull the Bible off the shelf, and he'd read it with both wisdom and calm and it starts, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Yea, though I, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I think that psalm, and I didn't realize it until I got to the last chapter of the book, and I, and I put that in there because my father used to read it, 
I didn't realize that that really comes to the core of what I'm talking about here. Yeah, I, I actually read that in your book as well, and was so struck by it. I mean, that that's the 23rd Psalm. Your father was Jewish for, for Jews and Christians. It's incredibly meaningful. I remember working in a, on a floor with patients with Alzheimer's disease, and so many people there who had lost everything, every memory, could still recite the 23rd Psalm. Right. But right. I also had never considered how 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 much that is it, 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 it's visual it's it's a it, it's 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 a picture of of place right it's the still right. and still waters the green pastures yeah. green and how pastures. that works things in us that right and 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 it does take you there uh-huh. so i mean one of the one of the theses of the book is that yes ideally if we want to find a place of peace we should go there to this beautiful pasture near the mm-hmm. near the still waters but but we can do it even if we can't get out of our hospital beds even if we are um, in the valley of the shadow of death we can go there in our mind's eye by reading poems like this and can you um but but is it I'm assuming that that's still dependent on us having had those direct experiences in our lives. Well, you know, what's interesting is, and again, this is like Irving Biederman's work and, and other people like Russell Epstein and uh, University of uh, Pennsylvania uh, have found that preferred scenes, beautiful views... Are they neuroscientists? Are they? Yes, I'm okay. sorry. Uh-huh. Uh, they're neuro- so they're both neuroscientists uh-huh. who study the way the brain recognizes visual scenes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there are different parts of the brain, each does its little job, uh, and there are parts of the brain that recognize things, tools, animals, uh, buildings. Interestingly, there's a part of the brain that recognizes buildings, faces, and there's a part of the brain that recognizes beautiful views. And those preferred scenes or beautiful views are universal. They are generally So green pastures and still waters. That's universal. Now, why is that? Uh, but I guess what I'm know. getting at is it is it linked to memory, or are you saying that are you saying that we we even have some template for uh, that kind of visual well, beauty? Certainly, yes. Yeah, certainly, some of it is memory. You know, certainly smells. Uh, you know, fresh mown hay or mm-hmm. fresh mown grass or you know wet mud in after a rain. Um, uh, those kinds of things tend to evoke very early memories. It's mm-hmm. it's sort of like Proust, also taste. You know mm-hmm. uh, that 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 goes directly. The smells and tastes go directly uh, to the emotional parts of the brain and and positive emotions or negative emotions. Mm-hmm. And some of it is learned. Some of it is learned by association. And and we know that because not only in humans, but for example, in in rats, very very standard. Um, studies to measure the effectiveness of, of, uh, of new drugs uh, that have effects on mood or activity um, is, is something called place preference. And, and a rat will very quickly learn um, many features of a physical environment, uh, you know, they, the texture of the floor, the color of the walls, the, the intensity of the light, the smells, mm-hmm. and will, can easily learn to associate either a positive reward or a negative reward with that exact environment. And if you change the environment, change the texture of the floor, uh, the, the, the learned association goes away. I mean, anybody who has a dog or a cat, um, 
whom you have to take to the vet and you put the 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 animal into the uh, you know the carrier right, case. Right. You you know that it's really hard after the first couple of uh, trips to the vet to get the the dog or cat into that case because they remember because they've associated this unpleasant trip to get their shots with that particular physical environment and the way to get them to not be anxious is to put a blanket over the case so they don't see it really mm. um, so that you you remove one of the visual cues so so we know that that certainly learned memories of a physical environment which include all of the above what you see here smell touch um, can uh, can trigger positive or negative emotions depending upon what your experience had been mm-hmm. and, th- and that's actually a-, a lot of the basis of what we call post-traumatic stress disorder now um, you know soldiers returning from war right. um, people who've gone through huge trauma and they associate the smells and the sounds and the the visual cues of the battlefield uh, when they come home with that huge, massive stress response that they had in the battlefield. So if they hear the backfiring of a truck, they'll have the full response, the full-blown uh, the response. The whole place co- and the whole experience comes back. Right. And, and in fact, the military, and I describe this in the book, is using that, that, that in their, again, the flip side of that, to treat post-traumatic stress disorder by using 3D virtual reality uh, immersion uh, and gradually reducing uh, the cues, sort of mimicking the battlefield that the soldier was exposed to in this 3D hmm. virtual space and um, and gradually removing those cues and desensitizing them. And and it seems the, the studies are not fully out yet, but it seems to be working very well. But, you know, again, this... It, it, it's obvious. We all we've had we've all seen this with animals, but it seems to me this is another example of it's it's true of us it, where, where we may be less conscious of this happening all the time, right? I mean, do a, do well, we know that when when we're, when we're in a certain space that we're later going to associate with a bad experience that we are internalizing the textures and sights and sounds and colors and light, you know? I think the, the answer is no, we uh-huh. don't. And that's we why have. one of we the f- things uh-huh. we have. And so one of the things that I I discovered as I was writing the book um, uh, and and I became very conscious of is exactly that, that that whether you're consciously aware of the uh, your physical environment, it is affecting you. And one of the things that I tried to do in the book is is bring out this huge amount of neuroscience research that was not designed to answer that question, but that does answer that question. And and the reason is we know an enormous amount about the environmental variables that have to be controlled for when you're doing a study in animals to test the effectiveness of a given drug. And that's evolved over decades um, because that's how you know drug testing is 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 done and we know that there can't be crowding because crowding you know stimulates the stress response we know that light has to be a certain intensity that it has to be 12 hours on 12 hours off we know we know a huge amount of of you know the temperature of the environment right. all of these things have to be controlled and it's it's sort of a given it's sort of so what of course you have to do that otherwise you're going to get too many environmental variables in your study to know what the drug did well turn the question around and you can say, well, wow, 
those environmental variables are really important. They're affecting the brain's stress response and the brain's relaxation response. Let's apply that to humans. Let's apply it to hospitals. You know, you know one of the mm. things that I um, write about just, in the book. Yeah, you know, this is, I had this, had, I'm just, it's just coming to my mind and surprising me from the, 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 the extreme negative example and, you know, mostly what I know about torture, I know from watching 24 on television, but right, that's exactly what, aside from just the things you can do to someone physically, it's creating a space, right? It's, it's all this that you're talking about. It's, it's going overboard yes. on sound on and right. Uh, right. lack. It's deprivation of all of those things. Yes. Well, too much and too little is mm-hmm. the same as all biological systems. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, one of the things that I realized when I was writing the book is, why do we have to take for granted that hospitals should be stressful places? Right. You know, I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. when when I lecture about this, I ask my audiences, how many of you, when I say the word hospital, associate it with a calming, wonderful, soothing place? And mm-hmm. people start to laugh. Yeah. Um, fortunately, that is beginning to change uh, because of exactly the science that I'm talking about here. But until very, very recently, uh, even five years ago, I would say, um, you know, people just said, oh, well, of course hospitals are going to be mazes where you come in the door and you have no idea where you're going and they're noisy and they're smelly and, yeah, you, or, you know, and, when you go, and or bland and depressing in their or isolation. Generic, right. Yes. And, you know, and 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 or fearful because there are mm-hmm. all these unknown big, you know, monster machines lurking in the corner where mm-hmm. you have to go and expose yourself um, to them. And and. You know, if you think about when you go to a hotel in you know in a in a or a spa, um, you know these these uh, industries have figured this out a long time ago. I've they been know in some depressing hotels too. <laughs> well, the ones that are positive, they want when yeah. you walk in the lobby, yeah. they they actually pump in fragrances that are either you know mountain fragrance or beach fragrance or something mm-hmm. uh, meant to subtly elicit your positive relaxation memories and so on it, you know they're not mazes they're not no. mazes stress you out because you don't know where you're going and so why not apply this to hospitals and in, and the beautiful views and in fact that's being done now i mean another really basic thing that your work makes me be conscious of is um you know, light and color. And oh, again, yes. I mean, you know, kind of maybe we know this, but when you when you talk about, when you describe the places where we, we, I think many of us have memories of being invigorated by these things, of being most aware of them would be gardens or, mm-hmm. or on the other end of that, stained glass windows mm, mm. that somehow um, captures some of that same... You know, almost not just the restorative, but the energetic properties of those things. Well, so interesting to think about this. Well, I think that's the the very interesting point because, in general, we don't want to be always in a soporific state, right? Mm-hmm. You want to mm-hmm. be that way when you're relaxed, when you're at the beach, when you're going to sleep. Uh, but equally, you want to be energized. You want to be happy. You want to have some sense of desire. You want to be alive. Yeah. Uh, being alive means that you respond moment to moment to different external stimuli in an appropriate way. Um, and and people want to feel alive. I, I mean, I think that's why they go to places like theme parks, like like Disneyland, Disney World. You know, you get on a on a, a ride and you really feel that zing, which comes from controlled 
stress mm-hmm. response, really, mm-hmm. uh, which when it's just a little bit in the right circumstances is actually energizing. Um, so, you know, the physical place can do all of the above and, and you can, you know, who else knows, speaking of Disney uh, world, I, you know, I actually went, I describe in the book a behind the scenes tour um, of Disneyland and, and these people in theater, people in theater, people in movies, right. figured all this stuff out a long, a long time, time ago. Before doctors long did, time ago. yes. Uh, yes. Way, way, by trial yeah. and error. Yeah. You know, what's the first thing that, you, that happens when you go into a movie theater or a theater? What's the first thing that happens? Well, it's dark. I mean, it's a whole enveloping yes, experience. It. Well, the, the lights go out. Yeah. What that does is it takes away your own reality, huh. and it allows the producer to replace your reality with their reality hmm. because they've taken away the visual cues. Hmm. And so now you can immerse yourself in another place, in an imaginary place, and you 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 forget about your surroundings. Hmm. So, you know, they've figured this out a long time ago. One of the really interesting pieces of history that you tell um, is that Christopher Wren who was yes. the architect who designed St. Paul's Cathedral, which is one of these, you know, one of these spaces, again, you can get more intentional about thinking about the power of that. We human beings have created these spaces that somehow exalt. And um, right. that he started out, did he start out as an anatomist and he was doing yes. illustrations for an anatomist? Yes. And wow. <laughs> yeah, so... It, it was uh, it really, I was actually, I was speaking at the Royal Society of uh, Medicine in, in London, and this august society has been around for, uh, I don't know, several hundred years. And um, and I uh, I learned this, this interesting piece of, of information uh, when I, I actually went to their library. And you can look at the original drawings of um, Sir Thomas Willis, the anatomist who first described the brain in perfect detail. Mm. Uh, He has this huge tome um, from 1664 um, where he, uh, every page shows engravings of the brain in perfect detail we cannot do better today. And they're they're Mm -hmm. sort of cross-sections and elevations and three-dimensional and two-dimensional and every possible, you know, uh, visual um, rendering of the brain. And at the very beginning of this, you know, 400-year-old book, there is a dedication to um, Christopher Wren, my (laughs) colleague Christopher Wren, who is the one who actually drew those drawings. Mm. You know, who better than an architect to draw the drawings of, um, you know, of Mm. the brain? Mm. And so there was this collaboration across disciplines, um, which, which, you know, today we are carrying on in a a different uh, iteration. So one of the big interesting places this points at is um, is at what we what we have traditionally called the placebo effect mm-hmm. and I, I, there's been a lot of interesting thinking and revisiting of that term recently and your work is you know very much speaking to that um, to, to, what but when, rather than me me describing it I mean how would you describe, um, you know, what you're learning, what you know, 
that, um, I don't know, would not only make us rethink but perhaps rename uh, this thing we call the placebo effect? Well, the placebo effect really is the brain's own healing process. Right. And, and that's a long word, so it's probably easier to say the placebo effect. But the problem with the word placebo is it carries with it a lot of baggage. Yeah. Um, it, it, it feels you know, like people, a trick usu- or there's nothing yeah. to it somehow. Right. And you're, there's the, a, word yeah. pl- the word placebo is usually preceded by a four-letter word just. Right. Oh, it's just the placebo effect. Yeah. Well, you know, when you look, and there's controversy about this this too, the exact numbers, but when you, when you look at placebo-controlled trials, the reason we have to do placebo-controlled trials to determine the, quotes, true biological effect of a drug or intervention is we have to subtract out the placebo effect um, where people have an expectation that 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 just taking a pill uh, or having an injection or whatever the intervention is, they have an expectation that that will heal. And in fact, it does. It reduces pain. It, 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 it can reduce inflammation to a certain degree. And the, it's hard to estimate, and it differs with different conditions. But the percent of effect of the placebo effect in any given uh uh, intervention has been estimated to be somewhere between 30 and 90 percent. Right. 90 is probably a little high yeah. and 30 may be a little low. So let's say 50 percent. A drug that has the ability to help reduce pain by 50 percent is a very powerful drug. So, uh, you know, it's not a trick. It is your, it is your brain uh, activating anti-pain pathways, releasing those endorphin molecules, releing those desire molecules, dopamine, so to shift and reducing it's the stress response. It's in fact response. the drug that is a trick, right? Because what we do with the yes, drug is no, trick our brains into abs- doing that. Absolutely, that's it. So, you know, so why not use this in a sort of a, a carefully titrated way and say, okay, why not Put the individual who needs to heal into the most healing environment where the the stress response is not activated and to the extent that we can, it's reduced, where you have positive emotional memories that flood you. Uh, put them into a situation where they're likely to release these positive, these anti-pain uh, molecules and these you know, dopamine uh, molecules of reward. And, and that will allow their body to heal or to receive the drugs that you are then giving them. So I'm not saying, you know, uh, don't go give, to a desert yeah. island right. and, and don't take your cancer chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying don't fight against it mm-hmm. by uh, by putting yourself in a stressful situation. Uh, do the maximum that you can with things like meditation and yoga and prayer to help amplify these pathways in the brain that we know ultimately can help the immune system do its job to heal. Right. And... It's very striking to me that, um, and you know, I wasn't I wasn't looking for this. Um, yes, you, you we're talking about some things like yoga and meditation and prayer. You're also talking about light and windows <laughs> and color yes. and yes. and and not and the right amount of noise. Um, all of these sensory sound stu- music, yeah, yeah. Um, 
But it, it does turn out that a lot of the examples you give and that other doctors give or end up studying do have some connection with spiritual traditions, um, whether it's looking yes. at the architecture of a cathedral uh, or, right. or, or you know, Richard Davidson studying the brains of meditating monks and, and right. therein making some of these amazing discoveries. Um, you also devote a chapter to your book on healing spaces to labyrinths which is a yes. very ancient phenomenon um, and kind of being rediscovered in, in the 21st century. Right. And labyrinths are so interesting. I, you know, I think partly because of the, the Minotaur, the, the Greek myth, um, uh, people think originally when you say labyrinth, people would say, oh, that's a maze. And a labyrinth is very different from a maze. Uh, and and labyrinths are calming walking meditations and and or allow you to to walk calmly and meditate and and uh, mazes are stressful places so what's the difference in a maze you walk into a maze and if you're a rat or a mouse and if you're a human you can go to there's a wonderful maze outside of uh, Hampton Court in uh, in near London which was built by one of the kings of uh, England back a few hundred years ago. And, um, you know, you walk into this hedge. It's got, got an eight or ten foot hedge. So you right away you don't see where you're going. Right. But as you said, and, a lot of our buildings also feel like mazes when you walk well, into Well, absolutely. And the reason they buildings. feel like that. Mm -hmm. Well, hospitals are built like mazes because typically you have the old original small hospital building and then they keep adding wings mm -hmm. to it, which hospitals until recently were designed really to optimize the diagnostic tools, you know, the x-ray equipment and, and the blood mm. drawing and so on, rather than the human being that's going to be in that building. <laughs> okay. um, but <laughs> airports, too. Just think about an airport. Yeah. Yeah. You go into an airport, they don't really necessarily care whether you know where you're going. It's really where the planes are and how convenient or it is to get there. whether you can walk from. all that way. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's walking is good, but yeah. that, that's another story. But... Um, but getting back to a maze, and, and, you know, it's funny, when I was writing the book, I, I described this, these old, dusty cathedrals and mazes and things, and my editor said uh, on the first draft, she said, you've got to put something in there that young people would want to read. What about Harry Potter mm -hmm. and the, the mm -hmm. Goblet of Fire? And, mm -hmm. of course, I hadn't read Harry Potter. My daughter was <laughs> old enough that I hadn't read any of it. I'm embarrassed to say. So <laughs> I quickly ran out and bought the Goblet of Fire. And indeed, the description of Harry Potter in that maze and how he feels is exactly the stress response. It's a perfect, perfect description of the physiological stress response that mm -hmm. is triggered mm -hmm. when you are in a place where you're trying to navigate it uh, with a time limit. You know, it's yes. getting dark. You yes. want to do this before it gets dark. You come to a decision points. So you have to have multiple decision points. That's very stressful. Um, you don't know if there's a dead end, and if there is a dead end, there could be a monster lurking there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the fears, very primal fears, are are raised by these mazes. And if you put it back to going into a hospital, you're already stressed because mm -hmm. you're anxious about your illness or your loved one's illness. Yeah. You can't find your way. There are these, you know, as I said, monster machines lurking in the in different corners right. where you're you're going to be exposed to them yeah. and and so it it really is a very stressful experience whereas a labyrinth um, a labyrinth is just a pattern on the floor uh, I described the Chartres, Chartres labyrinth outside of Paris in the from Cathedral the 13th of century yes mm -hmm. and it's just pattern of stones in the floor 
um, which has been perfectly preserved because um, because the church didn't look kindly on labyrinths, and so they made sure that the benches covered the labyrinth. Oh. <laughs> so as a result, you can only see it, I think, one Friday a month, and um, uh, but it's been well preserved. And, and the rose window uh, of the cathedral is placed in such a way that the sunlight on the s- summer um, solstice comes right in and falls directly on the labyrinth. And there's all kinds of theories as to how that came about, and I describe it in the book and what it means, and all sorts of very interesting theories about these these structures that are found all over Europe, um, also throughout the throughout the globe, um, and then there are structures where you walk you walk the path and you find you've come to the middle, and then you stand and you meditate in the middle or you sit and meditate in the middle and then you walk the path and come out. But you see where you're going. You mm-hmm. don't have any any dead ends. Uh, you know you have all your senses. You can see in here and and you can navigate. You don't have to think about navigating, and so you're able to get into this this place of peace where you're just there's something about movement right you know, I, I don't know i have to say i did it i did a, i walked a labyrinth just recently at um uh-huh. at the new year i haven't done that much of it but but also what's different from what you described about the mazes or being in a hospital is um somehow you're right you know exactly where you're going to step next and you're not yes. worried about that but you you mm-hmm. stop being so oriented towards getting to the end which is an oh, that's, unusual that's true. experience um, <laughs> in my life yeah. where I'm always ticking off my next <laughs> thing on my to-do box. Well, no, it's true. It gives you a... So that's, you know, that's a very interesting point that I hadn't thought of until now. So when you talk about a place of peace, which is really what I'm talking about here, how yeah. do you find your place of peace? There is an element of time to it or mm-hmm. forgetting time, mm-hmm. or not worrying about time. And we're so conscious of worrying about time and the time pressure in our world that it's hard to to strip that away. And, and things like walking slowly, it forces you to walk slowly, right? Yeah. You can't be running through a labyrinth, although I have seen kids <laughs> running through a labyrinth. <laughs> uh-huh. But... but um, you know, it's um, well, I've you, for some the... you actually feel like slowing down. That, I mean, I'm just yes. thinking about this myself too. But there's something about the experience that makes you want to draw it out and slow down, and that in itself is kind of a unusual instinct. Yes, I I, I think you're right. I, I've walked the labyrinths um, in the National Cathedral in Washington D.C. and and um, and we actually have that in the television show. Um, and and one thing that they do that's very lovely there is they have music at the same time. And, and often it's a few people from the choir or it's um, uh, a wonderful uh, flautist who plays um, a um, sort of Native American flute or harp music. Mm-hmm. And it kind of it just gets you into this place of quiet and peace and... Um, and and slowing down another another similar sort of experience I've had is with a Buddhist prayer wheel right. uh, that was um, or a drum I guess it is um, where that was um, put into a uh, a lovely meditation garden in um, Sun Valley near Sun Valley Idaho and uh, it was done when for for the uh, when the Dalai Lama visited there and it was a garden especially dedicated to him and when you 
push this prayer wheel around, it's actually quite heavy. And and it forces you to slow down. Hmm. And and in order to to just turn it around and keep the, the right pace so you're not falling off the platform, it really does force you to slow down and look at the surroundings around you and, and just be quiet and, and meditate. So, you know, I think a lot about... Um, we've often, in the West, for the past few centuries, certainly thought about how science might... Um, you know, might might uh, and does seem to sometimes um, invalidate insights of religion. Hmm. But it seems to me, at the same time that that you know that can be true, that, that there's this interesting thing happening now. I mean, I'm also interested in what is the wisdom, and even really, I see, you know, maybe spiritual technologies that these traditions actually have carried forward in time over many centuries some of which are now being validated by science. And so, you know, it strikes me when we talk about how many of these examples um, have to do with, it's like you said, theater people have known this for a long time (laughs) about creating an environment. And it's also true of religious spaces. And it's everything from, it's everything from gardens to prayer wheels to labyrinths to stained glass windows to incense to music um, yes. actually creating uh, this environment that you are learning is helps heal us, can help heal Ab- us. Absolutely. Isn't that uh, interesting? Absolutely. It, it is. And it's, uh, you know, I talk about frankincense in, in the book, in the chapter on, on smell, on the, the sense of smell, and how fascinating it is that frankincense actually turns out uh, to have uh, immune-boosting uh, uh, <laughs> features. And, you know, because I always, as a, as a non-Christian, I always thought it was rather odd. In the that, Christmas story? The in the Christmas story, men. the gifts of the magic. Uh-huh. Right, it's you have frankincense, myrrh, and gold. And I said, what? why are they giving these weird things, frankincense mm. and myrrh? They should be giving diamonds and rubies. or, <laughs> and, and, and in fact, those resins, those fragrant resins and oils were very, they were far more valuable than gold or diamonds or rubies in those times because they actually used the, the Roman soldiers and, and it was said that uh, Bathsheba uh, gave, gave the, um, hmm. the plants to um, King Solomon. Um, and uh, King the, the Queen of Sheba. Oh, sorry, okay. I'm mixing. Yeah. On, sorry. Get, well, let me get, start again. Get your affairs, your biblical affairs right. <laughs> Can we cut this out? <laughs> the Queen of Sheba. Yeah. It's close, but okay. So, you know, that the, the, the frankincense was so valuable and myrrh that, that the Queen of Sheba was said to have given the plants to uh, King Solomon. And then when the Romans came into um, the, the Holy Land, they, they mm-hmm. took those plants back to Rome and had them guarded by uh, sentries because they were used, the, the, these resins were used um, to heal after battle. <laughs> To heal wounds, to pre- prevent infection, so and and new studies show that in fact frankincense and these kinds of molecules uh, do have uh, beneficial or boosting effects on the immune system. So there's a lot of of 
you know, lore that can be studied now in a, in a rigorous scientific way to understand how it works. I wonder if um, you've ever heard of the, uh, uh, he's, uh, he, he's a recently deceased Irish poet, philosopher, John O'Donohue. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, he talked, he talked a lot about landscape. Mm-hmm. And that there's there are outer landscapes and there are inner there's an inner <laughs> landscape, which <laughs> is one way another way of talking about, you know, what's going on in that psalm that your fa- your yes. father loved the Psalm twenty three, but also that we all have these landscapes. And also, I think his point was, we can create them. Um, you know, we can choose to keep uh, images of beauty inside ourselves, even when that's not what mm-hmm. is directly around us. I don't know, I just wonder how you hear that, knowing what you know about this this science and what's going on in our brains. Well, I think it's absolutely true. And from a scientific point of view, um, there is a part of the brain that specializes in memory of place, the hippocampus. I mean, it's, it's important in all sorts of memory, but it, it's very key in memory of place. And And one of the things that it seems that the hippocampus does is it integrates all of these incoming sensory signals uh, from the visual cortex, from the auditory cortex, from the olfactory bulbs, so what you hear and Hmm. see and smell and touch. And the hippocampal cells that are actually called place cells because they tell you where you are in the world. So it's kind of like your internal GPS system. Those little GPS cells uh, actually have inputs from all the sensory um, modalities in the brain, and they integrate those senses and, um, and, 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 in, and in, um, instill the, the whole in memory. And, and so, in fact, from a neuroscience point of view, the poet was right, that we do have an internal um, place hmm. that we can go to from our memories, um, if we can dip into it. And, and that is one of the points that I, I make in the book, that, that ideally, yes, we would all love to be able to go to our favorite Greek island, you know, and I describe that. <laughs> yeah. um, but what I learned from that personal experience in my own life Where you is had that a real healing experience on a Greek island. I had island. a real yeah. healing experience when I went to this tiny village in in Crete called Lentus, and I had, you know, that was when my arthritis first uh, appeared, and um, and I tell the story of how I serendipitously ended up going there with neighbors, and in a 10-day period, I, I began to feel so much better. I didn't heal. It wasn't like the miracle of Lourdes, which yeah. I also describe in the book, but, um, but I felt so much better that I realized I could recreate this this world at home. And, and so I have on my deck in Washington, um, I have uh, a gardenia tree and jasmine bush, and uh, I can sit there and in the evening and the summer and listen to the crickets and inhale the scent that reminds me of the orange uh, blossoms and lemon blossoms from the Mediterranean. And I have lavender and I have mm. uh, basil and, you know, all these fragrant plants that, that I find very soothing and healing. And uh, you can create your own little space wherever it is. And if you don't have a deck, you can, uh, 
you know, put a few plants in a window. Um, and and if you don't have a, if you don't have a window, you can read the twenty third Psalm. <laughs> and you're really saying um, this is medicine. Not, not yes. It's interior decoration, maybe on some level, but it's medicine. <laughs> it's medicine, and it is being applied now. The wonderful thing is that because of the science, because we have now more and more rigorous studies that show the beneficial effects on mood, on health, on the stress response of these different aspects of the environment or manipulating the environment in this way, um, the designers and architects and urban planners can now and are being able to incorporate these features into their designs. So hospitals are being designed with beautiful views and with windows and uh, with places for social support. We haven't talked about that, but social mm-hmm. support is important in healing and um, with, f- you know, smells to, you know, mask the, right. the and, horrible smells and the sounds and so on. But you have to create space. You have to create spaces for social support. I mean, even in, in workplaces. Well, right? so, and this is, people... it comes back to the practicalities. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it comes back to the practicalities and why the architects and designers and urban planners need the science. Mm-hmm. And and more and more research is being done now. That's, I think, the frontier. We need to now do the actual research to get the numbers to say it is worth spending extra money up right. front to put in more of these windows and spaces and so on. And some of the work has been done. Um, the Center for Health Design in San Francisco uh, ha- sponsored us together with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, sponsored a series of studies called the Pebble Projects, where they they understood that you're not going to build a whole hospital from scratch and say, I think this is how it should be. And oops, it didn't work. Let's throw it down. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> they, they started these studies where... Uh, health outcomes, various aspects of health outcomes were measured uh, in uh, patients in new wings of hospitals that incorporated these different features. Mm-hmm. And um, and then um, Derek Parker, uh, who was one of the principals uh, involved in this, um, added up all of the actual costs from these different kinds of extra wings that were built on 50 different or 30 different hospitals and and said, okay, this is how much it costs extra to build such a hospital if we were to create such a fable hospital, he called it. Um, He calculated it would cost about $12 million extra uh, to build such a hospital, but you recouped about $11 million in the first year of operation because of the savings on not only the health of the patients, but the health of the staff. (laughs) So, you know, that's the kind of evidence that we need, and more and more is being done now, to really... to really document that th- that it it's good not only for the human being in the space that you build, but it's good for the bottom line. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the very exciting things that I've found since I published the book is that architects are just embracing this all over the world. So I've been invited to a yeah, you're a in those member. discussions, aren't you? There, I, I am. Uh-huh. It's just wonderful. It's so exciting to see it. it it's so I'm I'm a member of a, a an advisory committee for the American Institute of Architects. Um, on it's called the Design and Health Initiative. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm advising the U.S. Green Building Council on uh, incorporating these kinds of features ultimately into hopefully uh, the 
LEED certification of uh, of buildings, and that's it's not there yet, but that's would be a goal. Um, I I was invited on a five city tour of Australia to speak to the uh, Australian Green Building Council. Hmm. Uh, I mean, all over the world, architects, designers, urban planners are just embracing this, and the bottom line is. What I tell them when I speak to these audiences is you, the designers, the people who create the built space that we, the rest of us, live in, you are our partners, our meaning the health professionals' partners mm. in the health of the nation. You are our partners in uh, in prevention of illness, mm. in helping to reduce the stress response, in helping people to find a place of peace because you're the ones that Build those places of peace. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, Esther, you um, there's a there's a beautiful, succinct and very profound sentence in your writing. Um, if illness and health are nouns, then healing is a verb. Yes. And and I wondered I wondered if we could if I could ask you that on a more personal level, as we've mentioned, you you are one of the people who helped. Uh, display, demonstrate the sci- the science of how rheumatoid arthritis, for example, is a, is, is a very good example of how mind and body emotions and mm-hmm. physiology yes. are connected. And you also um, are a person now who lives with arthritis. So I wonder if you could tell me, you know, with all of this we've been talking about as a background, you know, uh, what does healing look like as you move through the world now? And what does it look like differently because of all these things you're learning? Wow, that's a good question. Um, so healing, when I say it's a verb, it's the body is constantly repairing itself. Uh, that's what life is. You know, a rock just sits there and and it gets <laughs> it gets you know it it eventually gets into sand or or mud or something as the elements uh, affect it. But a living being is constantly repairing itself against all of these different insults at a very, you know, molecular level, at a cellular level, at an emotional level. And and so disease happens when the repair process uh, is not keeping up with the damage process, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a very active processes are going on under your skin and actually on your skin. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, as you as you exist um, at every moment of the day and night, and so that's what healing is to me. Um, there are other, you know, there's many studies asking the question, "What is healing?" And different people have um, different concepts of what the word healing is. And to be healed, you know, you can die healed. Right, if you use right, the right. word in an emotional sense, Not you can cured, feel. But healed. Healed, mm-hmm. right? Um, you you can feel at peace. You can feel in balance. Um, for me, I guess it is feeling at peace, and in um, keeping up with that damage process. So, if one has an underlying chronic illness, and and I'm very very fortunate that that the inflammatory arthritis I have is a not rheumatoid and b relatively mild okay. to moderate. I I have a gene that. Uh, predisposes to mild to moderate inflammatory non-rheumatoid arthritis for those listeners who uh, are interested (laughs) in the specifics. (laughs) But um, it's, so what happens is I have become very conscious 
of the kinds of things that I do that will trigger my symptoms to be worse and the kinds of things that I can do to, to the extent possible, reduce those symptoms when I'm going overboard. So, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> So there's no question that when I'm pushing myself, when I'm stressed, when I'm trying to burn the candle at both ends, I get worse. When I don't sleep enough, I get worse. When I don't exercise gently on a regular basis, and, and what I've found is the most helpful is swimming three to four days a week, or in the summer even more, or walking 30 minutes a day, which has been shown to be beneficial uh, for maintaining health and maintaining the, the, you know, the strength of the immune system. So gentle exercise, enough sleep, reducing or coping with the stresses of the day, having a place to sit and quietly contemplate or meditate. Um, these are the kinds of things, and social support and love, you mentioned love is very important. Mm -hmm. um, so these are the kinds of things that when I forget, and I, you know, I'm, I'm human. I do frequently forget and push myself and I get stressed. And and then, you know, as Hans Selye said, stress is life and life is stress. I mean, hmm. forget about it. You can't stop stresses right, from happening. Right. Which, is, um, which is actually, uh, it helps my stress level to acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so, but what happens is when I do realize that I'm pushing myself too far, I remember how bad I felt when I didn't stop. Mm -hmm. And I do those things that I know will help me. And I did design my deck uh, at home and my sunroom at home in such a way that I do have my my place of peace. And and actually, that's where I end up doing most of my work. I, I used to have my computer in a different room and I found that I kept moving it to the sunroom and I finally said okay this is obviously where I want to be I need to have well, this Well that's atmosphere. interesting because I think computers are part of a lot of our stress but uh, you're actually saying that maybe even that can be um with in the right environment can It be gives more you a positive. way to Yes I mean so I mean one of the things with the stress response is you don't need to go offline, and I'm, I mean offline, mm -hmm. off your brain's line, not mm -hmm. off the computer line, for, for very long to kind of reset things. So, so if you're cognizant of this, you can, if you feel your, your, your stress level mounting, and you just turn away and look at the trees and listen to the birds um, and be quiet for a few moments, you can, you can bring it down. You can, um, you can titrate it. Mm -hmm. You know, there are... There are um, there are tools now available that are really offshoots of biofeedback where um, you can do this. Uh, they're like computer games, actually, where you put a little um, sensor on your uh, finger or your earlobe and it senses your uh, blood flow. And it will tell you when you deep breathe deeply. So deep breathing mm -hmm. is, is one thing that's that calms you because it reduces the stress response. It kicks in the vagus nerve and that... Uh, improves heart rate variability and blood flow. <laughs> We're going to breathe here on the on the radio, and and <laughs> so um, so and you can actually see your heart rate variability improve and shift from a stress mode to a relaxation mode when you use these little games, and and so you can actually teach yourself to. Um, to go offline, to, to, to have that shift into a relaxation mode on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And then you can go back and focus on whatever it was you were doing. Your life, And being is. in a place that allows you to do that 
uh, helps you to do that more more efficiently. Mm-hmm. So, from uh, from that scientist's scientist who you were when you first started getting into this unlikely connection between emotions and physiology, and where you've come now. As, pers- as a person who rearranges her physical space, thinking of her <laughs> physi- physiological health. Um, if I ask you this way, how has your sense of what it means to be human, how do you think that's changed? Wow. You always ask such great <laughs> questions, Krista. Well, that's kind um, of a big one. That's yeah, the question like of the philosophers it, yeah. across the ages. Well, well I was going to say a therapist, but... Well. Um, um, how has my sense of being human changed? Um, I think I'm much more accepting of these notions that I was skeptical about before. I was coming from the scientific tradition, and, and the tradition was if you can't see it, it isn't real. If you can't prove it, it isn't real. And I think I'm much more accepting that, you know, maybe... There is stuff that we can't see or prove, but that are these things really are affecting our emotions and our health. And I think I'm much more open to these new concepts. And um, so that's one thing. I am definitely much more con- conscious of the physical place around me. Um, and I, you know, you, you started by saying as a person who, who rearranged my physical space on purpose uh, based on these principles, actually it was the other way around. Hmm. I, I uh, rearranged my physical space without realizing what I was doing. And then uh. when the construction was finished, I stood there and looked at it and I said, oh, I just rebuilt my parents' deck. <laughs> right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and so that you know takes that place me back of peace into from your place of peace that yeah. right the yeah. memories the memories, so I guess I'm I'm more aware of these things and I'm able to look at these phenomena and think oh okay now I see why I'm doing that um, I don't always fully understand it but I mm. I think it helps me to to understand it and to be more more um, consciously. Um, consciously aware of of how place affects me and those around me and my emotions and my health. Mm-hmm. There is a phrase and that especially occurs in Celtic spirituality and um, it's a, a thin thin places. Huh. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but it's uh, um, yes, yeah, and the idea is. Uh, well, I, a lot of people would think of cathedrals as thin places or, you know, green pastures, still waters. Uh-huh. Um, this experience that human beings have of being in a place where, and this is the way some people will say it, it feels like the veil between heaven and earth is worn thin, where yes. there's an ex- a sense of being earth, you know, planted in the earth and yet also having some kind of almost physical sense of transcendence. Um, yes. I just wonder how you react to that, knowing what you well, know. Well, I react to that. I, I have heard of that notion, and and I do think that there are places where one is more aware of creation and of, you know, a higher power, call it God, um, 
whether you believe in it or not, you know, you go out into the night sky and, you know, a place like Tucson, Arizona, where it's dark because the, uh, the, they have the observatories, the uh, telescopes around there, and you look at the, the masses of stars and the Milky Way, and you feel very, very, very small. Hmm. And you realize that, yes, there could be some other, some other force of creation that you have no knowledge of. And, um, and I am actually very interested in exploring what is it um, about such places, about beautiful vistas of mountains, about the infinite horizon of the ocean? Um, what is it that makes you feel that way mm -hmm. about a cathedral? Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly physiological and neuroscientific basis to that feeling, that sense of awe. And I am convinced, I know, that these things can be measured. And, and that's the exciting new frontier for me, to ask exactly that question. Right. What is it that makes one feel transcendent? And is the environment something that we can consciously um, manipulate to find those feelings of transcendence? You know, if we're so grounded in clay, is there a way to, at times, by simply going to a different place, achieve that sense of awe and transcendence? Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, Christopher Wren knew something about that, didn't he? A couple of <laughs> years ago. He did. And, you know, when I visited the cathedral, it was, it was very interesting because I walked from the Royal Society of Medicine to uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, which is not a short walk, but a very um, interesting walk in London. And I got there, it was just before Easter, and there was a, a single man, you know, the soloist, I guess, of the choir, who was practicing, I believe it was from the Messiah. Hmm. And he was standing in the middle of this dome and with this crystal clear voice that rose to the ceiling, it just gave, gave me shivers. It was really a sense of awe. So it wasn't only the physical place, it was what that place did to sound mm -hmm. that contributed to that sense of awe and transcendence. Um, so yes, they Christopher Wren understood this explicitly or implicitly mm -hmm. and created places to, as, as did all the Gothic cathedral designers, mm -hmm. uh, with, as you said, the, 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 the light, the stained glass and, and the, the smells, the frankincense and all of it that comes together to make you feel that, that sense of awe. Mm -hmm. Well, we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Is there anything else? Just another minute and a half. Anything you want to add? Um, I th I think the most important point that I I came to in my own journey in writing this book is that that we really can create places of peace, not only in our real world, in our physical environment that surrounds us, but in our own mind's eye and and those kinds of places of peace are 
are portable. Hmm. You, you know, you can take them anywhere. Mm -hmm. And and as you said, in many different traditions, like the the Buddhist tradition, or uh, in in virtually all religious traditions, you you close your eyes and you visualize something. Well, you can. That's a way of carrying these environments, these healing places, within you. Mm -hmm. um, it's wonderful if you can go to them, but if you can't, you can bring them to yourself. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you. It's always wonderful talking to you, yeah, Krista. Yeah, it's great. And we will um, we'll let you know what's happening with this and when and... If there Great. are, we'll, we I know we want to ask that question about your credentialing. So, um, so yeah, we'll talk yeah, again no. soon. Yes, and um, th now we're offline. Are we have, yeah. <laughs> are we recording? Yeah. Okay. So you know, I'm going to be in in St. Paul uh, in uh, the end of at the end of um, the month, April. Oh, so at the I'll, end of April. Okay. Good. Yes. Yes. Okay, so, so just send me your dates. I'll send you the dates, and I'm going to be speaking at the uh, at the U and uh -huh. at the Marsh. Oh, all right. I'll, yeah, I'll come out so. and get a massage and then listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it together. I'm okay. not going to give it. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much, oh, Krista. This yeah. is wonderful. Thank you. You take care. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.